0: A podcast one production.
1: Andy Griffiths, thank you so much for agreeing to this involuntary interrogation. That is my pleasure, I think. I hope.
0: Trust no one. The level of sedition, anti-authority behaviour and advertiser unfriendly thought crime has reached record levels, especially amongst Australia's elites.
1: Treason.
0: Luckily, the men and men of The Chaser have been commissioned by Border Force to conduct interrogations and sort out the subversives from the Patriots. Betrayal. In conjunction with ASIO and the Five Eyes Intelligence Sharing Protocols, this is Extreme Vetting with The Chaser. The Chaser.
1: Now, Charles, we've done such a great job with our previous interrogations that today we've got a real star. Oh, really? One of Australia's most successful children's authors, a man who regularly fills any venue, and has sold a massive number of books... Both in Australia and internationally, Mr. Andy Griffiths.
0: Andy Griffiths, my kids love him. He's the one who wrote all those uh, books, like the day my bum went psycho. That's right. What Bumasaurus is that? Yep. Uh, what body part is that? The the bad book, the very bad book. Well, the treehouse uh, 13 books. Thirteen story treehouse. Yeah, so many treehouse 26 books. Twenty-six story treehouse. There's thirty-nine a lot. story treehouse. He just
1: keeps adding thirteen. Fifty-two eight.
0: story treehouse. You
1: don't need to list them all.
0: The sixty-five story treehouse.
1: Maybe jump to the most recent the one.
0: Seventy-eight story treehouse. Oh, God. Um, Charles. The 91 story treehouse. Yes, that's the new one. Fine. You could have started with the that. The treehouse one. fun book. The treehouse fun book, 2. He's quite a prolific author. Uh, stinky Stories. Let's get into it. Fast food and no play make Jake a Fat Boy. Charles. The Big Fat Cow That Goes Kapow. This is not an the interrogation. Naked boy and He's crocodile. sitting there waiting. Andypedia.
1: He's shivering. Once Upon a Slime. He's in pain. The Cat, the Rat, and the Baseball we Bat. We don't have time for this. Let's get into it.
0: Bumageddon.
1: I'm bummer getting you in a second if you don't get on with
0: it. Zombie bums from Uranus.
1: Oh, I should work with you.
2: Can we start with your full name, Andrew Noel Griffiths?
1: Noel. Mm, that's my dad's name. Now we normally ask people their age. I think in this case, your equivalent child age is probably the most relevant thing. How old do you think of yourself as as a child? It's somewhere around ten.
2: Definitely pre-adolescence. It's that age where you imagine that you can do anything, you know, whatever you can think of is a possibility.
1: And consequences aren't fully understood not, yet. Not
2: into, Not not to be worried about. <laughs> and where were you born? Melbourne, Jesse McPherson Hospital.
1: What was it like growing up
2: in Melbourne? Um I had a fantastic childhood. I was in the inner city in Pascoe Vale for the first eight or nine years, and then we moved out to the eastern suburbs, which was all rapidly converted
1: orchards into new housing estates. Are so Melbourne we were, children raised just wearing grey and, and muted creams? <laughs> no, no, I
2: think we had plenty of coloured clothes. It's, it's as you get older, you, you, you don the
0: uniform, yeah. And what was your favourite coffee? growing
2: up as a Melbourneite? Uh, It was was very embarrassing. Nescafe instant coffee is Mm. is all I drank. That's very normcore, actually. That's very fashionable (laughs) these days. And I was happy with that until I met my wife 20 years ago and then she introduced me to
1: Stovetop. So you went straight to full Melbourne.
0: Yeah, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. And so what's the naughtiest thing you ever got into trouble for when you were growing up? Like before the age of 10 sort of thing.
2: The naughtiest thing. Um, well, I did get sprung one morning going, instead of going to school, I went to school a long way across a very busy road because I was obsessed with bubblegum tattoos. Oh, and I remember those. Bubblegum yeah. gum tattoos. Well, you get you buy your bubble gum oh, and you get yeah. free tattoos with the bubble gum.
1: I remember the smell. I absolutely yeah. remember the smell of those things. They were toxic. But you, and you moved on to real tattoos. I can see. Yeah. Well, these now. days, yes. Yeah. Which what sort of bubble gum did those come in?
2: Uh, it was just kind
0: of oh, these ones. Those ones. No, there's no bubble gum with these. <laughs> just pain. And so <laughs> when you you went the long way to school and whatever, you turned up late or something.
2: Uh well, no. Uh, I must have been late, yes, and they knew I'd crossed the busy road that I wasn't supposed to because we'd fished out our local milk bars and we had to start moving further afield. So um, that was bad. Mm. Did you ever steal anything when you were young? Um, no, I was never into stealing. Um,
0: so you are a bit of a goody two-shoes?
2: I was... Uh, yeah i was probably i had a good friend danny pickett he was the one always getting into trouble mm. so i like many comedians i think i was the one sort of taking notes watching him as he was chuckling going off to the principal again and i'd be like how could you be chuckling when you're going to the principal's office because that guy has a strap with broken glass and <laughs> rusty nails in it that's what we'd heard um, and did you frame him No,
0: no, no (laughs) Did you give him ideas that got him into trouble?
2: Not so much Although we did get into trouble once For, um, we had, you know, you get a drawing pin And you rub them really backwards and forwards on the wooden desk And then you put it on someone and it burns them Because it gets hot And I did that to Danny one day and somehow it was an illegal move. So I had to submit to have it done back to me. And he got it put it put it in a ruler and made it super hot by Ooh. rubbing it backwards and forwards and then burned me on the wrist, and it
0: came up in a big blister, which, you know, the teacher knew or saw. That's a technique that uh, could be quite useful to us at Portafool. Yeah, I've heard of that one. <laughs> I
1: thought we had all the interrogation techniques, but uh, you heading heating up pin with a ruler is something warm something Pins are not that
2: easy to find anymore, but in all, the old days in primary school classrooms, they were full
1: of them. What about your student days? What did you get up to? We know you were involved in the music scene in Melbourne.
2: Yeah um when I was in secondary school we had a, a a conceptual band, which was was nev- it
1: actually a band? It was just an no, idea no, of a band. It was just an existed. idea
2: of a band. We were <laughs> going to be the world's greatest rock and roll band, surfing rock and roll band, show surfing movies. Our drummer was going to have a drum kit so large that he couldn't reach the furthest tom um, toms with his sticks. He had to have a bag full of marbles to hit them, and um, and we were just parody songs of the day. So. Uh, can't Get No Satisfaction became Don't Make No Sense of Maths and we were just writing about all the stuff that was going on in a maths classroom um, and it gave us endless amusement and we would have band breakups even though there was no band we'd fight <laughs> yeah. over the lyrics or whatever. <laughs> and whatever. This
1: is following a bit of a pattern, isn't it? I mean, these flights of fancy <laughs> that, that can go on to build out.
2: It was always about entertaining each other. Um, We're supposed to be doing work, but we're not doing the work. We're just entertaining ourselves. And then um, for the final day of Year 12, we put the band together for a big joke. We built it up for many months. So this is going to be the biggest rock concert in the the history of the world. And I ended up as vocalist because I'd been doing all the lyric writing and I couldn't sing to save myself. But it was kind of a punk rock spirit. And we, did, we actually did a punk rock version of the school hymn <laughs> uh, just before the headmaster pulled the plug. But it was a huge success. And, and that was the first time I'd been in front of a microphone and realised I could entertain people. Did you have a treehouse as a kid? No, but my cousin had one, uh, just a single plank, very mod, a few planks in a tree, up in an oak tree. And I remember that feeling of being up away from the adults and away from the ground, and you just be enveloped in this total imaginative game. And so that's what I recognised from my work with Terry Denton. That's the state we're in, even though we're adults, we're in this kind of um imaginative realm where you know it's not real but in a, another sense it is real and you you're living that drama.
0: So you get into that state when you're with Terry Denton.
2: Yes. Yeah and, and together we, we quickly revert to ten years old. <laughs> it's it's just you
0: know, adult drops away. And and so you write together, do you? Yeah.
2: Yeah right. Yeah. Well he was the first illustrator I worked with twenty years ago and then um I loved what he was doing. I would write separately and then he would come in the last moment really and just decorate it. But I loved what he was doing and recognised that that bad schoolboy energy. Mm. And I said, we should do this. We should just get together every week and just make each other – laugh and see what happens and try to write together without one person leading. And so took a half a dozen books to really work out how to do that, how to let Terry tell the story visually and me to get out of his way and um, have a story that can be almost inhaled visually. That's a
0: possible metaphor. And, and how quick is it for him to draw those illustrations? He's, well, rough, really, really fast. Yeah. In fact, we do
2: live events where the kids are just yelling stuff out and he's just drawing it right in front of them. Um, and then once we've got those roughs, then he may sit down and, you know, to draw a 91-storey treehouse will be a couple of days for the detailed <laughs> artwork to emerge. But Sorry. He's very fast. Charles, can I just
1: Ooh. see you for a moment? Yeah, sure. Charles, this is... um. Developing quickly, we've got a, a man who's got experience with weaponry, yep. uh, with the pins and weaponising uh, everyday items, torture. Very useful. Yeah, a, a lot of imagination, perhaps some difficulties with, uh, with t- telling between what the real and, and so on. But also mm-hmm. this treehouse idea, uh, to me, reads as anti-authority. It's a space where the grown-ups can't get you.
0: Yes, and that is worrying. There should be no spaces where we can't get them.
1: Because we we can't always get into treehouses in water forces. (laughs) If they're high enough up in the tree, we'd need a warrant as well. And a ladder. I think we need to find out more about this uh, treehouse alternate environment. I agree. Mm. And I'm keen to find out more about this idea of the treehouse. There's a lot of things in the treehouse, frankly, that seem dangerous and uh, possibly inadequately regulated.
2: Uh, well, what you say is true, used to be true, but in the 65-storey treehouse, we did have a visit from a safety inspector called Inspector Bubble Wrap, who was concerned about a number, you know, the fact we don't have a fence around our shark tank, mm. um, we, we have a volcano that can erupt at any time, and um, he was he was extremely concerned, but we managed to convince him that having a bit of fun and danger and risk in your life is actually kind of enjoyable. And he came round to our way of thinking by way of a long trip through time in a rubbish bin. But And in the end, he said, as long as you've got a wheelchair disabled access ramp, that's okay. And so we built the world's most dangerous disabled access ramp, with a um, tungsten tip saw blade that can cut them in half and gaps where they can fall into pits of crocodiles and lions waiting to eat them at the end. And that's the, he's given us a permit to build endlessly into the future.
0: Wow, that's, that's great so news. It's,
1: it's all legal. Because we've been looking for years at uh, rooms where eyeballs explode. It's something we haven't been able to master, te- mm. the technology of a port force How did you manage to do that?
2: Um, well, it's just a room where you go in and your eyeballs will explode. Mm. Uh, Some to do with the frequency of the room. And it's a very popular room. In fact, it surprised me. When we came up with the room, I said to Terry, no kid in their right mind is actually going to want to go into the room where your eyeballs explode. But, in fact, if I was to ask that to a room full of, say, a 1,000 kids, you would have a 1,000 hands up. (laughs) Um, I don't understand it, but we go with our
0: customers. Would you be prepared to help Border Force build its own room where, where eyeballs explode? Are you? What
2: are you using it for, though? Is it for fun well, or is it for no. some nefarious <laughs> purpose? Well,
1: Andy, some of us think that what we do is fun. Um, <laughs> well, what we do have, though, is a maze of doom. Uh, it's on Manus and you cast people into it and, and essentially trying to get out of there is impossible. It, mm-hmm. it is a form of doom. We are on the same frequency in some respects.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, we built ours for fun. Um I don't think Manus was built for fun.
1: You have got us on that one.
2: It does depend on your, your intention, I think, a lot of
0: these levels. Yeah. Now, what about the marshmallow cannon? Could you perhaps loan us one of those?
2: Well, in fact, it's not a cannon. It's a marshmallow machine that fires marshmallows into your mouth whenever you're hungry. Mm. Very useful. Yeah.
1: If you're hungry, mm. yes. I mean, that could end world hunger, couldn't it, if you if you manage to roll that out on a big enough scale?
2: Yeah, but then it could start an epidemic of... Diabetes. Um, what, diabetes, <laughs> thank you. Um, so it needs to be used responsibly. And, look, I did feel a bit guilty about the diet of Andy and Terry in the treehouse because mm. they have a chocolate waterfall, lemonade fountains, you know, marshmallows. And so in the 52-storey treehouse... We we I created a plot where we're fighting a vegetable army, mm. and um, they were helped by the vegetable fighter vegetable Patty, who comes in and helps to chop and mash and kill all the vegetables. Um, chop them up, and she turns to the reader and says, that's why we need you to eat all the vegetables because the (laughs) sooner we eat the vegetables, the sooner we'll be rid of them off the face of the earth. And so there is a vegetable-eating
1: message in 52. Is that the one part of the book that hasn't resonated with kids? (laughs) (laughs) Because my my nephew's seven and there's just no way. We've tried everything. He's never eaten a vegetable in his life.
2: Yeah, well, you need to explain the danger of them because the vegetables capture us and put us in a <laughs> pot and try to cook up human soup because they're, they're incensed that humans eat vegetables. So, perhaps if you read him the book, and then I can supply you with the Vegetable Fighter's Oath, where you, you can make him say, I, uh, my name, uh, do solemnly swear to eat vegetables, breakfast and morning, and, and uh, lunch and dinner until all the vegetables are gone. So help me God. And I think he's got that gonna book. Work. We're going to check in on that oath. Yeah.
1: Um, how many ideas do you throw out for each new story that gets built? Because they're all so ingenious.
2: Yeah, there's, we generate probably ten times the amount of ideas that we need um, to get the the ones that really stick. And and often I don't know they'll stick until I read them out in front of a group, and you'll see them react. So is there sort of
1: a nine hundred story reject treehouse where yeah. all the bad
2: ideas go to die? <laughs> exactly. Uh, some some just get held over because they're too similar to each other, or we've we've got levels that we've already used. But um, yeah, no, I love that challenge of, say, writing the the numbers 1 to 50 on a page and then just I have to fill it with 50 random levels that we haven't used yet. And that kind of frustration and pain produces the diamonds every now and again. And sometimes the kids will just give them to you. I go, hey, why don't you create a Ninja Snail Training Academy? And I go, what did she say? I said,
0: Ninja Snail Training? Brilliant. I couldn't think of that in a million years. Uh, actually, in terms of the ninja snails, could you put us in contact with them? We're very interested in uh, using them on Border Force.
1: Yeah. Um, what do you actually want to use them for? Well, sometimes there are protests, Andy, in and people. While we respect democracy, not all the time. And I just think the scale of a ninja snail, you could just sneak in under the legs of the protesters It will be really fun for the snails.
2: Uh, Yeah, they can. I don't know if it'll work with your time frame, though, because the snails are killers, that's for sure, but they move very, very slowly. (laughs) I'm happy to send a few your
1: way. Eventually. Yeah. (laughs) One concern we have, I guess, is um, all this uh, inventiveness and adding on stories all the time and, and having a tree house where friends can live. Are you giving Australian children a sense of false hope about being able to have their own house? And (laughs) renovate it.
2: No, because the beauty of our treehouse is that it's in your mind. So anyone can come in and enjoy that treehouse. And they often, they're all writing their own stories about treehouses. So everyone's living in a virtual treehouse if they
1: want. Actually, Charles, we need to speak for a moment. Uh, Sorry, Andy. Andy. I didn't realize we've got a housing policy I right there. It was a real treehouse. Um, I'm I'm embarrassed. Did you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I've got kids. It's completely made oh. up, but
0: no. But that's a great idea. That's. You, that's you a, think they can still use it? No, I think what we do is we tell everyone that they can now own their own home in their mind. It, it solves the housing affordability problem right there. It's the only thing that might. All right. So look,
1: the relationship with the kids is. A fascinating thing to see. I've been on radio with you before where kids have rung in and, and chatted to you, do a lot of events. What is it, do you think, about your approach to relating to kids that makes that difference? Because they seem to really relate to you in a way that they don't with most authors.
2: Part of it's innate. Um, like, kids have always been attracted to me, even when I was a kid. We spent I spent a lot of time in our street telling the kids ridiculous things that had happened to me, you know, that couldn't possibly... And they know it's not true, and yet that's the game. They're trying to catch you out, and you just keep inventing supporting detail. So I always loved that that game, and the, and notice kids love to play it. They love to find a silly adult who's, who's not totally concerned with getting things done. Um, and the fact, I think, also that Terry and I both take it seriously at a certain level where we we understand what we remember what it's like to be a kid and how much pleasure you can have in just contemplating absurdity mm. and how much yeah not just how much fun it is but how good that is for your your developing imagination
0: do you think a 6 year old reading this you say they know it's not true but do you think that's actually true Oh, no, they don't know what part of it is not true. So, yeah, the, the, many
2: kids are, are desperate to know if, it's, if we have an actual treehouse and all these
0: things happen. Because the cateniri, that that is true. If you paint a cat yellow, it turns into a canary and flies off. Well, only if you throw it out of the top of your
2: treehouse. Mm. Yeah, you need to give it that impetus and, and motivation <laughs> to grow flat. the wings. <laughs> yeah. um, but it seems true enough. And so that's that's our art. But I do think they pick up on the mischievousness and the playfulness of it. That's that's the tone that they immediately hook into.
1: Do you ever worry that the kids will take some of the things you've invented and actually act them out, or given that quite a lot of what you write is incredibly dangerous to um, do in the real world?
2: Look, in the old days, I was... I was well, I was never concerned about it, no. I, well, I was concerned... But I thought, no, I always knew the difference between what was appropriate in a book or a movie or the Three Stooges and what you could get away with in real life. So, and I think most kids have that, that common sense at a certain level and that's why they enjoy out-of-control rambunctious fantasy because they know the rules are, are relaxed and they know these characters that we're writing about are not real and that... Cats can't really fly, but in a book they can, so let's go with that. And so I've, I've never thought a kid reads a book like a robot and then goes, oh, okay, now I'll go and do that. They're, they're smarter than we give them credit for. Same as adults. You, know, you watch a murder mystery, you don't go, oh, now I'm going to go and commit a murder. Uh, that'll be fun.
1: Um,
2: we know the difference, and so do kids.
1: Yeah, we're hoping that the listeners to this podcast don't go and interrogate Australian celebrities in an awkward sort of interrogation <laughs> room. But I, I guess also this has always been a part of children's literature, hasn't it? If you go back to the uh, Brothers Grimm and so on, people are getting eaten and all this kind of stuff.
2: Yeah, well, Hansel and Gretel it was a terrifying story where the, the parents, you know, abandon the kids. We we can't feed them. We don't want them. We'll get rid of them, um, which is pretty horrendous. Uh, the kids um, find a house and start you know eating it so we've we've got gluttony that taboo busted right there. then the old woman is a cannibal she tries to fatten the boy up to eat him. Hansel presses pushes her into the fire. We have murder um, and then we have the snivelling father who who takes them back after the stepmother dies, says, oh, it was her idea. Don, <laughs> <laughs> can I
0: see you for a sec? Sure. Sorry, Andy. Charles. What he described was just completely the operations manual for Border Force. What's going on? How did he get it?
1: I don't know. He's probably got contact at the highest levels. I mean, everyone's got kids. Even the minister would have kids and probably be friendly with Andy. We should tread carefully here. Yeah, you're right. Look, I know he's an old friend of ours, but Andrew Hansen is much higher up than us
0: at Border Force. I know, I'm really annoyed with that. When not you know, like we, his flatmate years ago? He was better looking and better performer and writer and just all around more talented and intelligent.
1: Yeah, I guess I can and see
0: why they got him. So we've
1: got to defer to him. Um, so just take my lead in this, in this chat, okay? Okay.
0: Hello, gentlemen, have we met? I'm Andrew Hansen. I run the extreme vetting program.
1: Oh, hello, Mr. Hanson, sir. Uh, it's Charles and, and me, remember, from the old days?
0: Remember me, Andrew? We used to live together. It doesn't ring a bell, I'm afraid. Yeah, so I'm just wondering, can I borrow some money? Sorry, I'm still not really clear on who you are. Oh, no, wait a minute. We're supposed to be um, talking about Andy Griffiths. Yeah.
1: What? Um, Andrew, we are interrogating Andy Griffiths um, as per your orders And we've hit a little bit of a wall. Mm.
0: Well, either fry him with a car battery or waterboard him. Or if he's really refusing to crack, threaten to cancel his Australia Council literature funding. No writer can withstand that. We were thinking of maybe, you know, putting him into the eyeball Explosion Room. Well, I don't see why not. In fact, do anything you like. Anything we
1: like. Thanks, Andrew.
0: Yeah, no problem. problem. Um, Sorry, what did you say your names were? Rainbow and
1: we used to be Friends?
2: Friends? (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> oh, at Border Force, we don't do friends. Dismissed. Sorry, Andy. Uh, just thinking back on my own experience reading kids' books, the idea of anything being possible is so exciting. I remember, it, particularly at the end of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, when the elevator when the elevator busts through the roof, and it's like, oh my gosh, it's out of the factory. Anything can happen. That's a, an amazing thing. Is that sort of what you look for? Is that is that, I, I guess, what's driven this desire to write all these books, the same sense of anything being possible? Exactly.
2: It's that feeling. Yeah, anything is possible. And I got it from Enid Blyton very powerfully, um, the sense that you could sit in a wishing chair and the, the chair would grow little wings and then fly off to dangerous lands. She, of course, had the magic faraway tree where – uh, lots of unpredictable characters, but especially that the lands at the top, where mm. if you might get up there and, oh, it's upside-down land. And if you stayed too long, it could move on and you'd be trapped in upside-down land for how, who knows whether you, how long it will take to get back. So, yeah, I loved that it was always anything can happen, but there's a slight danger.
0: Yeah. But it's interesting because my kids love your books, but getting them interested in Blight Blyton is a genuine uphill battle. Even the Magic Faraway Tree, which is basically the 13-storey treehouse with exactly. a different name. you <laughs> completely just ripped it off. More well, Jack and the Beesok, even. But, the idea is, you know, climbing things, I guess. But there's something that actually distances Inid Blyton nowadays from kids in a way that wasn't true a generation ago.
2: Well, look, she is still selling very well. Um, those books have not stopped selling. But they're not for everyone. There's a certain Englishness about Mm. them and
0: probably just a... With lashings of ginger beer. I could never tell
1: what ices were, whether they were ice creams or or icy poles or just bits of ice. I still don't know. Mm. But
2: for for a kid who loves reading, that's not going to be a barrier. You just Mm. ignore stuff that you don't get. But... I know what you mean. It's it's just slightly dated. And I was an English teacher around the late '80s, and kids I was teaching secondary school, and kids were just walking away from books. You know, they, they had movies, they had um, computer games coming in, and a lot of the books were very serious and message driven, and they were just like only nerds read books. You know, we'd go to the computer game or the movie where wow, anything goes, and. I and i thought wow the 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 humor books that were around were like um you know henry lawson stories and you know, 20 classics of you know mm. australian bush humor and yet they were watching the simpsons we'd had the monty python revolution we'd had the young ones and i just thought you need to keep updating your humor because humor keeps updating itself so that was my aim to to merge Enid Blyton with the young ones
0: was that the motivation behind writing those sort of just tricking and just stupid and the the bad book and the very bad book like they're basically updated joke books like you don't feel like you're particularly giving your um, kids vegetables when you when you read them it's almost like a treat um, is that yeah the idea.
2: Yes, but that's that's how I learned to read and lo- love reading. And we have, in Melbourne have um, Professor Cole, who was a bookseller, who wrote these Cole's funny picture books. I loved those. They yeah. were the best. They were endless yeah. and inexhaustible co- collections of rhymes and bizarre pictures and everything. And his exact philosophy was you teach a kid to read by giving them pleasure
1: while they read and then trust that they will move on it's interesting you say that too about enid Blyton, because I, I had one grandmother who was a children's literature academic and so she was always giving me the award-winning books to read yeah. and the other one had every enid Blyton book ever and I, st- I still read them just as much and the other grandmother didn't approve and it was quite tense for a while there but mm. do you uh i guess particularly with the bum series there's a naughtiness about about your books how do you feel about about being in that i guess position within the market being at the naughty end of things um they came early on,
2: the, like I'd done four just books, which were in the spirit of Cole's funny picture book, lots of illustrations and and lots of taboo breaking. And then I was being told by librarians that my books were so subversive that they were upsetting parents and and they'd had to remove them from the shelves. And I said, what, you just remove a book from the shelf because a parent complains? Oh, yeah, well, you know, you've got to. I said, no, you don't. These books are working for for a lot of kids who have totally disengaged from reading. You should override them with your professional judgment and tell that parent they have the right not to – they can ask their kid not to uh, borrow the book, but they can't dictate to the whole school community – and it just was driving me insane that this conservatism was keeping us with these nice, pretty books that no one was reading. So, The Day My Bum Went Psycho began as a joke. Y- so, you we- muscled up at that point. <laughs> well, it was a joke. The kids would go, are you going to write another book? And I go, yeah, this one's going to be a serious book. though." oh. And I said, well, <laughs> there's nothing funny. It's called The Day My Bum Went Psycho. And they ah. And that was just a throwaway line for a couple of years until the publisher said, are you ever going to write this actual book? And I thought, (laughs) well, this would be a great book to write and put it in those goddamn librarians' faces and make them say the word bum and psycho over and over again so we can just kind of move on a bit from the 1920s. And so that's why that was written partly just to provoke and annoy but having been a punk rocker,
1: that was <laughs> very easy for me to do. And I grew up in the UK for a few years. Bums are very funny over there. They, they never went out of fashion.
2: Yeah, yeah. And and the book did well over there and in the US, you know, unaccountably, although there were butts over there. But The Treehouse, I think, is a more sophisticated book in terms of the bum humour is just total nonstop body humour. Um, and a deliberately one note. But Treehouse blends a lot of the different types of humours into a much more um, accessible and sophisticated book, I think. When did Jill come into the series? Well, she was the first editor on my first book, Just Tricking, in 1997. So I, was, I met her through the publisher, and we just discovered this enormous shared love of humour and of children's books. And so we, we gradually crossed the line from editor and author to partners. And um, she's really been part of the writing process ever since. So I'll, I'll just pitch ideas to her. And she has a slightly different... Uh, I, I tend towards the extremes of humour. I want to go to the dark places and how, how absurd and crazy. And Terry will take me there as well. But Jill will go, oh, you know, that's just, a. am not getting a lot out of this as a general reader. So we need to include her as well. And that that's how we get a nice end product. But yeah, she's in there writing. She writes some of the rhymes. She'll write bridges for me sometimes. And so we put her in the book as a fixer character. She's the girl on the other side of the forest. Who always comes when they're having problems with their animals, like Terry's fed his underpants to the sharks, um, and they've they've got sick. Call Jill; she'll go and she'll dive in and do open shark surgery. So <laughs> metaphorically, she's doing open heart surgery on our books.
1: How does that work in terms of the the boy versus the girl readers? And do you think about the uh, the, the gender of your audience? Yeah,
2: well, like Enid Blighton, there was never a gender divide. For me, that was it. Was not boys? Well, there were boys and girls characters. So I was conscious I did want girls, and all through the Just books and the Bum books, in fact, there are very strong female characters um, holding their own and often running rings around the boys. Um, uh, so Jill, Jill is 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 there to stop it getting too much of a boys' club?
1: Yeah. Could we pitch perhaps? two more characters, a a Charles and a Dom, two friendly Border Force agents who come along (laughs) and, sure, they're a little bit tough on the outside, but they've got hearts of gold and they make Australia and the treehouse a better place. Well, that sounds really nice. I I don't see a problem with that. There'd be uniforms. Maybe there'd be a few creatures running around the treehouse we'd have to get rid of, but just to make everyone secure. Well, you might...
2: um do very well in the 39 story Trias. We had a, a character called Professor Stupido, uh, who <laughs> is an uninventor. And the opposite to an inventor, he can uninvent anything you want. And we created a machine to write and draw the books that actually took over and then wouldn't let us back in the trios because it figured it could do better than us. So we needed it uninvented. But then he uninvented that, but also uninvented the truncanator because it punched him in the nose. He uninvented the marshmallow machine because it fired marshmallows at his head. And in fact, Went ended up in uninventing the tree, the treehouse, uh, the universe, everything. Well, we, we could concoct
1: out, an immigration problem for Professor Stupido, couldn't we, Charles?
2: Yeah, that's that's easy. Uninvent anyone or anything that you don't like. Is that the um, philosophy of border? It, uh, it sounds border like force? a much
0: safer country if you just uninvented everything.
2: But where do you stop? This is the this is the issue that we confronted in this book. Well, I don't think
0: you do. I think. You just um, keep going. But do we end up with just Dom and Charles? It would be much safer. Dom, can I see you for a sec? Sure, Charles. Okay, so he's got the youth, you know... Sewn up. Sewn up. Um, he can sort of sway them to do whatever he wants. It's
1: kind of a pied piper factor
0: here, isn't there? He can invent fictional narratives that people believe, which is very useful, not just for kids, but for... For everyone, And he's got lots of machines and things that cause great pain and agony. So I think we've got to bring him on side. What do you I, I've got to go about how to do that.
1: Oh, yeah. Andy, look, it's been fabulous speaking to you. We want to do a deal with you. Uh, if we can borrow some of the machines, we'll let you out of here.
2: Um, will you use them responsibly and not to inhibit anyone's liberty or um, safety someone will be having fun at all times well that sounds fine to me yeah go for it thank you very much Andy Griffiths can I go now no
1: Extreme Vetting is recorded in the studios of Podcast One, written, presented and edited by Charles Firth and Dom Knight. The show is produced by Alex Mitchell, audio production by Nick Slater. The executive producer is Jamie Show. And to get in touch with us or for more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au or download the Podcast One
0: app. And remember, no one is safe.